Welcome to the Focus on Why podcast. I'm Amy Rowlandson and I ask my guests one simple question, why? Focusing on the importance of why, I share with you the relatable, uplifting and inspiring conversations I have with people from all walks of life. This podcast will encourage you to focus on your why to enable and empower you to achieve the success you desire. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why. Before we start, I would like to draw your attention to my weekly email newsletter, Friday Focus. Each Friday, I focus on one topic with one action arising. The link to sign up is in the show notes or head over to amyrolinson.com and sign up right now. Today on Focus on Why, I am joined by Guy Clapperton. Welcome, Guy. How are you? Very well, thanks indeed. And you? I'm very well, thank you. So what brings you here today? What is it that you're doing at the moment, Guy? Well, I have two strands to my business. Uh, first of all, there is uh, the media training that's based on 30 years uh, plus as a journalist. I've uh, realized over the years that there are too many people out there who just get led around and interviewed by the nose by journalists. And when I say journalists, that's very much a generational thing. I could also mean podcasters and various other media types. Uh, they get led around uh, and uh, the journalist or other 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 gets the interview they wanted uh, and the to the structure that they wanted which is great for us on our side as broadcasters as journalists but it means that we can actually miss out on the expertise being offered uh, because uh, we don't necessarily know the question that's going to get that particular answer which would be really helpful to our listeners to our readers or anything like that and um you never really get away from being a journalist when you've been doing it 30 years so i also have a podcast called the near futurist that was based on, well, a couple of things. First of all, I missed Tomorrow's World dreadfully, always watched it and always wanted to be on it. So uh, the internet has given me the facility to have my own little chat show there. Also always wanted a chat show, so now I've got one. So me and the small chihuahua in Peckham who listen to it, uh, I thoroughly enjoy every episode, I'm sure. It also means, of course, that if someone is um, uh, if, if someone is uh, wanting to use me as a media trainer and thinks, oh, is this one of these media trainers, him and his team, who, who used, to, uh, used to be a journalist 20, 30 years ago or something, they can listen to something that was in the last few weeks and think, can I actually learn from this person? Does he actually still do interviews? And it's interesting you sort of discern a difference there between podcasters, journalists and broadcasters. And yet, you know, what would you say were the differences and, and how would that you describe them? The differences are fading over the years. What I meant to say was that, you know, as somebody who's in my 50s, I tend to use the word journalist as a reflex. Uh, I do regard you as a journalist. On the other hand, although there's no such thing as a license for a journalist, there's no such thing as a barrier to entry for a journalist, uh, very frequently you'll, there are qualifications. Yeah, you can get qualifications. I'm sure those will arrive if they're not already for podcasters and for bloggers and for people like that. But if somebody has been a journalist for any length of time, I would expect them to have had some elementary training in the laws of libel. Uh, they would have some idea of whether, um, uh, the, 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 for example, I get from a, lot, a lot, number of podcasters I see, they're always very keen on having uh, uh, disclosure forms that say that they may they may broadcast what's been that said. 
in the world of journalism, if you speak to a journalist, then common sense dictates that you're not speaking to them unless you're expecting your words to be reproduced. I would also have an idea of, I think I just mentioned libel laws uh, and, uh, you know, when to check, when not to. I know a lot of, uh, so I'm yapping on at some length here, I know an awful lot of uh, people who are in the perhaps the pod, new to the podcast world or to the blogging world can get very intimidated when they're told, you know, you need to show me what you're going to put out there before I, uh, before you're allowed to release it. It's tosh. It doesn't stand up in law. If someone's agreed to talk to you and um, they haven't specified that it's on the, off the record or something, uh, then you have every right to broadcast whatever you wish from them because they've uh, made that uh, implied contract willingly. So those are the things I might expect a more formally trained journalist or even an informally trained journalist on the job to understand. Someone who is just working in isolation uh, from a spare room, which is an increasingly important part of the media landscape, I'm not denigrating that, may not have that depth of experience or, the, or those resources to fall on or fall back on. It's all very well for me saying that a journalist might have some training, uh, but uh, you know, where's a blogger or where's a podcaster supposed to get that training? And it's interesting, Guy, because we have evolved into a world where you can be a global broadcaster from your bedroom and anybody has access to do that. Absolutely right. If you actually think the whole world could be receiving this, uh, then that's quite a responsibility. And then you're thinking, well, what if I break, uh, I don't know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, what if I break a libel law that exists in Indonesia or somewhere? I'm just picking a country about which I know very little there. So I think, uh, you know, th those are advantages I think uh, journalists who are working for established publications will have because they've got that backup behind them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this uh, the, the new world, it, it still is a little bit uh, sort of Wild West. But if you libel someone, you will still find that uh, they can take you to court. <laughs> so you mentioned right at the beginning there that people are missing out on or could be potentially missing out on the expertise by not getting that particular answer for questions that and asking the right questions what's the skill that's involved well first I think listening is uh, very important uh, on the journalist part uh, and uh, uh, also doing the research so often the, the other thing about working and uh, doing things from your bedroom is there is never enough time to research somebody or your, your interviewee as you wish you could there's also the fact that uh, journalists and uh, other um, media participants tend to be experts in what they do. You do a really good podcast. You're great at asking questions. You're great at making feel people feel they're in a comfortable place where they could talk. That's brilliant. Um, if you were doing something on, say, technology security, as I've been known to do, you wouldn't necessarily be the technical expert in, uh, in tech security. So you might not know that you shouldn't be asking about um, I don't know, perimeter security anymore. Uh, you should be asking about overall security or you should be asking about uh, phishing with a pH. These are all sort of common uh, words, but you might not be aware of what the next thing is, whereas the person you're speaking to probably is the expert on that. So when I'm media training people uh, on the other side, I tend to try and get them to have the confidence to take over and to put their own agenda forward because they will have those insights. They'll be closer to the market uh, than, a, uh, a, than the person asking the question ever can be. Uh, I try not to get them to be overtly 
commercial because then that just ends up as a cutting room floor job. Uh, but I try to make sure they have the confidence and uh, the um, uh, and some techniques, some strategies to make sure that they get their points out there because that's really what the listener, uh, what the reader wants to see. They want uh, the interviewee's expertise, not the journalist's rough guess, which could be a very good guess, uh, but a rough guess nonetheless uh, as to uh, what exactly the readers are going to find essential. And this audience that you're working towards we all have different audiences we all have a different readership and it's it's piquing their interest it's keeping their interest it's educating them it's a whole variety of things what are you trying to achieve with your work guy I get right back to uh, the old um, BBC in the 1920s, 100 years ago indeed, uh, this year, uh, the Lord Reed's thing about to educate, inform and entertain. Uh, they, I think there are some journals these days, certainly some of the academic journals, that uh, they form very different purpose. Uh, but uh, I think there are um, sometimes I read quite a lot of, uh, say, technology publications and they get quite dry and they forget that particularly in the age of the internet, which we're well into now, uh, the, the choice of what you can read instead or what you can go and see instead is enormous. So, uh, you know, yes, they've got to inform and you've got to, you know, informing people is all about the audience and where that audience is at that particular point. So if you're talking to a consumer publication, you get rid of as much jargon as you possibly can. If you're talking to a technology publication or if you're not in technology, if you're talking to a marketing publication, then you can use words like KPIs, things like that, you know, key performance indicators, because the business audience will understand what you're talking about. If you start talking about KPIs um, and you're in one of the mainstream press then you might find that the journalists won't query it because they'll understand it but if they accidentally put it in uh, to the copy rather than explain it then you've left the reader thinking oh what's that mean then and then they're distracted because they um, they'll go and they'll click away they'll look up kpis in google and i think that's interesting oh look there's an interesting link down there and before you know where you are you've lost them completely with the age of the internet and the evolution of technology and your keen interest in tomorrow's world and Tell us more about what the near futurist does and how it evolves or how it is evolving to move with the times. Of course, I have to give credit to um, my um, business mentor a few years ago or speaking mentor, Alan Stevens. Uh, we were trying to work out what I should do to make uh, uh, to get my voice out there a little bit more. This started, actually, my wife had told me that uh, one of the problems with my business was that uh, she says, and I know she's biased, but she says I've got a good voice. <clears throat> she says I have got a good voice, which just cracked there, which has ruined that completely, but never mind. Uh, so my wife said I've got a good voice, and that just wasn't on my website. And so I was uh, going through this with Alan. We were working on developing my speaking, emceeing career, that sort of thing. And he said, what you could do with it is a podcast. And uh, you've got this 30 years as a technology journalist behind uh, uh, behind you. And we said, yeah, that's a good idea. And we just chatted about what I'd seen from other people. And without any disrespect to any of the people who do this, I'd seen an awful lot of presenters, speakers, podcasters at conferences on the, uh, the wires, this sort of thing, calling themselves futurists and talking about stuff that's going to happen in the next, um, say, 30 40 years now of course we're an audio podcast so your listeners can't see how impossibly young i look but i do have a little gray hair which is starting to show and you're now giggling uncontrollably because it's obviously completely wild uh basically by the time 30 40 years have gone uh, past you know this is of academic interest to me only uh, i wish 
everybody send my regards to the future, uh, but I'm hoping not to be working by that stage. Um, yeah, physically working would be good, but I take nothing for granted. So I thought, yeah, uh, we were just chatting. And I said, yeah, what, what I want to talk about is the near future. And um, I can't remember which of us it was said, oh, yes, you need to be a near futurist. And then we just uh, sort of looked at each other and thought, that's a very nice brand, isn't it? Uh, so the near futurist came from that. I then drew on, uh, I, I, very quickly, I came to the conclusion that it had to be me interviewing experts, uh, because if I believe in my whole motivation for the media training is that I'm not the expert, I need to get other people confident in producing their expertise. I uh, I had to get other people um, uh, on, so I made, decided immediately it was an interview show and uh, drew on my contacts in the PR industry, said, look, I'm starting this podcast. Does anybody want to pony up um, somebody with no guarantee that anybody's going to listen? And that was three and a half years ago, and it's uh, it's had a little rest just recently, but it's going to be coming back with, uh, um, uh, and it has a sponsor these days, that's Diffusion Public Relations, uh, who do not interfere editorial a great deal. They're very helpful in suggesting um, uh, guests and suggesting topics, but then when it comes to writing the questions, things like that, they have no... Uh, that they, they don't want any say, I think, they just trust me to go and uh, get on with it. So there's no uh, editorial bias, which is a lovely position to be in. And uh, yeah, it's getting, um, it, it's grown steadily, I would say. So let's talk near future. Near future for you means what in terms of a timeline? Near future, I would say about five years. Uh, the, it's it's not so much the time, in fact. Uh, you know, one person, you know, Ace wind-up merchant uh, once said to me, oh, yes, yes, I, I talked to, say, Rohit Talwar or Graham Codrington about what's happening in uh, possibly the next century in 2050, and uh, if I want to know what's happening next Tuesday, I'll ask Guy, which is, you know, the, the, the caricature thing. But to me, it's got to be actionable. Now, there are things that you have to forecast longer term which have to be actionable. If we want to get to our, um, uh, our climate change targets, our carbon targets for 2050, it's no use thinking, well, that's all right, we'll do something about that in 2049. We've got to start now, and uh, as we're recording, we just had this announcement from America about its investment in uh, uh, carbon technologies, which is great. But, uh, I, you know, I would rather everybody went away from my uh, podcast thinking I could do that at work or I could do that in my uh, in my private life or, uh, you know, this is going to be important to me. Um, we're just I'm just trying to get one off the ground at the moment about uh, eating insects uh, outside of uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Uh, but, uh, you know, that appears to be a uh, you know, there are a number of businesses starting up in that way. I've done one quite recently on um, lab grown or other factory developed meat which my brother's a vegetarian, I was asking him about this, and he was saying, yeah, you know, if there's no animals involved, you could have a vegetarian steak, which is actually a steak, which is an interesting uh, possibility. So there's all those uh, things uh, coming in. I've also done stuff on the workplace. I'm trying to keep it uh, a balance between stuff that's going to be interesting to the uh, uh, to, to people at work, but also people in their private lives. You know, the consumer market is very important to me. And what's piqued your interest of all the interviews you've had so far, Guy, most? Well, I think uh, there was one on vertical farming, which is where in, you, you basically do high-rise farming instead of putting it all in fields, which I, I found that quite interesting. Um, quite interesting, sounds a bit faint praise, but uh, for those of international listeners, I am British. That, that's me going berserk, by the way. You know, this is uh, just what we do. Uh, I've, um, uh, I also um, really found that those are, 
one that actually my mother-in-law really enjoyed, funnily enough, was one on hearing aids. And it started off with a question, why can you have fashionable glasses? Uh, as you can see, I don't. Uh, but uh, I, why can you have fashionable glasses? Why are they um, an accessory that improves your appearance? Hearing aids, they just help another sense, and they're almost always perceived as a negative. And uh, it's a sign that you're getting old, it's a sign you can't hear, etc. And uh, the, the best thing people think they can do is to cover them up. Whereas if you have headphones or headsets, I see we're both wearing these uh, uh, nice white, I probably best not mention the brand name, um, all gets a bit fruity there. Um, but the, uh, you know, we've got these earpieces in and, uh, you know, and yet immediately they are of medical use. Uh, it's suddenly, uh, it becomes very dull, very boring. So uh, we did a very nice piece on how uh, the, um, the I think it was the Bluetooth uh, special interest group is uh, is or was working on ways of combining those things so that you could have prescription uh, earbuds. Um, so they would help you with the ordinary hearing. They would pick up the, the, from the television, amplify it for you. But then also, you know, just work in day to day conversation as well as playing music to you and become a bit of a fashion accessory. So uh, th that I found quite interesting because I could uh, see myself uh, as I get older, I could see myself thinking, oh, yeah, I don't much fancy wearing a hearing aid. But why don't I have been wearing glasses since I was 10 and not battered an eyelid? Yeah, really interesting. It's, it is fascinating how you seem to have one foot in the future and one foot firmly in the past in terms of recognizing the values that you you brought sort of used from the BBC in the 1920s of educate, inform and, and entertain. So where is Guy in the present? What is it that you your focus on why element? Where does that come in? Right. At the moment, I'm trying to build up my media training business because I have a little team assembled. Um, I haven't used many of them uh, yet because there's been this pandemic around the world. So just when I was starting to get that going, of course, face-to-face -face training stopped. Uh, but I do have a camera operator. I have uh, an actor, Sophie Aldred, who I've worked with. And there's a couple of pictures out there at the moment for, uh, to use third parties uh, to train on my behalf. I've been working with uh, an excellent uh, business mentor, a guy called uh, Niels Brabant, who has also built himself up. Uh, training business over the years he was actually a client and he uh, suggested that I should uh, I should consider um, building this up because he felt the training he'd have was very good and I should be building this up and he, that suggestion came in my early 50s and I thought yeah why not build something up uh, so that it's a proper brand and there's something left when I decide to retire in my mid to late 60s and I'm really rather enjoying that you know working with other people it's very stimulating all based on the idea of bringing people out of themselves, of giving themselves confidence, of making sure that if a cynical journalist comes in, they're not all, by the way. It's a bit like driving instructors. You know, I try to prepare people for the worst drivers, but actually, you know, from your own driving, I'm sure you get out there, 99.9% of them are fine, but you've got to have those skills to deal with the maniac who's speeding or on the wrong side of the road or drunk or whatever. So I'm um, I'm not suggesting journalists to drunk with some drive, but anyway, I'm... <clears throat> Not all journalists. Anyway. I'm going to stop speaking about that now. But I, um, so you know, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying the process of building that up. Um, I've uh, got uh, more admin support uh, from uh, my um, virtual assistant. Uh, uh, again, that was a suggestion from Alan that I should get admin support. Uh, it's one of these strange things I find speakers and very small businesses, they're very happy to use accountants. But when it comes to some sort of more admin support, it's sort of, oh, no, I'm freelance. I've got to do that by myself as if it's some sort of religion. Once I'd let someone else take over my calendar and uh, 
uh, invoicing and things like that, it was, oh, I don't have to do that anymore. Oh, that's good. Uh, and that really, you know, the quality of life improvements have been very considerable and it's not as expensive as you'd uh, imagine. So it's basically growing that uh, a bit. And I would like, as it becomes, as the thing grows and as it becomes more feasible, I'd also like to bring in a couple of guest presenters on the near future. Because again, 10 years or so from now, it would be nice to think. <laughs> First of all, it'd be nice to have a look around and uh, see how much of that near future actually happened that I predicted and then keep extremely quiet about what the bits that didn't. Uh, and um, But it would be nice to uh, feel that, that could carry on after I've decided uh, it's time to hang up the microphone as well. Although the idea of hanging up a microphone sounds absolutely poisonous to me at the moment. So whether I will ever really give up or perhaps go part time or you know look at those other options when it comes to that, I don't know. Well, it is great that you have the flexibility, as we said earlier, of, of from working from home. So it's not like you need to trek into town and, and go to a studio I don't have anymore. the flexibility. I do not own an office. Uh, I have no flexibility whatsoever. This is it. You know, it's, uh, so, uh, you know, they, uh, people talk about the flexibility, etc. That, that's actually a luxury in its own right. I've been a home worker since I went freelance in 1993. Uh, it was quite funny, actually, uh, when um, the pandemic started, People came to me and said, "How do you cope? How do you do? How do you do this work from home thing?" And of course, the fact is that uh, your, your first, uh, the, the first thing is you do it from choice, uh, and uh, you start when you don't have to, and that meant that the whole mindset was a world away from what people were going through uh, a couple of years ago. So, I don't think I was as much help as I would have liked to have been. And going back to you, just said that you'd like to work with bringing people out of themselves. Is that something that you yourself have had to work on first? No, I'm a mouthy little sod, always have been. Uh, I'm, um, I, I've always been quite chatty. I've always been quite gregarious. Uh, although I am the person who will go into a network meeting and freeze until someone starts chatting to me. And then it's a bit like, uh, you know, having some shaken up a Coca-Cola bottle, thinking that looks, uh, looks harmless, and then opening the bottle and they're thinking, God, is he going to go away anytime soon? I was that person at school who thought he was terribly amusing and everybody else was less than convinced. Uh, <laughs> I've come to realise over the years. But this is why I've done things in the past, like I did a stand-up comedy course, uh, not because I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, although when the one gig did go really well, I was tempted, but then realised I didn't want to work Saturday evenings, and there's a bit of a career disadvantage there. Um, I'm not suggesting I got to the stage where I could have, but uh, you know, maybe if I maybe if I'd worked on it, I could have. But I just didn't have that dedication. Uh, but um, yeah, the idea of that was to get, get me to actually get it under control and to uh, you know deploy it properly in um, presentations uh, when I'm on stage emceeing uh, conferences, which I do from time to time, or doing keynote uh, speeches as the near futurist, which I've done from time to time. It's sort of, right, you don't just joke all the way through, guy. You think, yeah, that's where there's a lull, or this is the technique you use there. And it ends up as a much more focused and rather better presentation, just because I've uh, sort of had a look at what's going on in my brain under the bonnet. And under that bonnet, what what is the the drive, the purpose-driven focus? Uh, over the years, I think it's become about getting people to be able to put their point of view clearly. Um, I say point of view. Um, I tend to deal with commercial organisations. I don't deal with politicians uh, just because, A, I think many of them are untrainable. B, uh, 
I don't know how I'd feel um, if I were training. I mean, let's say you get into a run and there's Donald Trump there and they say, right, you've got to keep him under control. I'd be issuing a refund before I'd even started. Uh, so you know, that, that's, a, that's a very different world. Um, but uh, I, I, I started off, I think when I was in my early 20s, I wanted to become a newsreader or some sort of presenter like that in the old media, of course, in the 1980s. And um, over the years, I've realized that uh, you know, so much journalism unintentionally stifles people and uh, their um, ability to put their point of view, partly because there's so much marketing and actually over media trained uh, comment out there, uh, which really doesn't help. You know, you realize sometimes that somebody is asked a question, say a politician is saying, well, I think the question that needs to be asked is such and such. And you can just see the technique a mile off. But there are people out there genuinely who are not terribly secure about their um, uh, about their organisation. I still get people coming to me who have uh, who will say things like, uh, "Well, I'll be able to check everything the journalist writes, won't I?" Or, um, you know, "Do I have to pay for journalists to write for me?" You know, they're that naive. Um, I've actually occasionally had that when there's a the internal public or external public relations persons in the room, and I'm thinking, "What have you been briefing them? Why do they? Why are they asking me this?" Nine times out of ten, I'm told afterwards they're sanity checking what they've already been told because um, I've been in the FT, I've been in the Guardian, I've been in all these various, uh, I've been on the BBC a tiny bit, and uh, they just don't necessarily believe the 25-year-old graduate in her, his or her second job uh, who's told them this stuff. They think, oh, no, that can't be right. Surely if I pay a journalist enough, I'll get it to the publication. So they asked me instead. So tell me, Guy, you're talking about not being over overly media trained that journalism can stifle people and and also going back to the elements of not having the bar, the barrier to entry to getting in that it's available to everybody but the the clear purpose for you is to put your point of view clearly across what are the implications for doing that and also not doing that the problem with not putting your point of view across is it can get misunderstood. Um, I appreciate we're going out in September and uh, podcasts hang around for a while. So just if I may put this into context, uh, we're now in August uh, as we speak. The last week we have had the um, person who may be prime minister by the time this um, uh, this comes out or who may we may think we all thought she was going to be prime minister, didn't we? One of the two. You can delete that when it comes out, you know, whichever happens to be. Um, you know. Anyway, uh, Liz Truss, uh, for it is she, uh, was in the, uh, came out with something about uh, settling local government's uh, pay rates locally. Someone worked out that this was likely to involve cuts in pay for some, uh, uh, some um, uh, government offices. And she came out and said, I've been willfully misinterpreted. By the press and then uh, a few days later she said something else and one of her supporters uh, came out and said uh, uh, she's been misinterpreted by the time you get to speak to the press if you've been properly media trained you'll be making yourself sufficiently clear that you will not be misinterpreted so it can lead to genuine misinterpretations there will be people of different political persuasions who will think that's just flip-flopping around and using it as an excuse you should never use that as an excuse. Actually, I always think when I hear uh, the defense that if somebody has said something that, uh, that's been, maybe it was quoted out of context or whatever, but the defense, the journalist was incompetent, always sounds like a very feeble defense to me. 
I would much rather, even if uh, somebody does feel they've been misquoted or something, or uh, that something's been misinterpreted, I'd rather hear them say things like, uh, you know, I've, uh, uh, I couldn't have been making myself clear, or better still, I apologise, let me clarify, or something like that, just sounding less defensive. But there is no substitute for preparation in those instances, and you just hear so much out there which probably is due to misinterpretation. Some of which may come out because from the journalist not being the expert in your particular topic. I mean, I've had... Um, there was, uh, I've had, uh, again, people in the technology security security area saying, oh, the journalist just wants a simple explanation. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, the journalist's only got 300 words. Uh, and uh, yes, it is a complex area, but we've actually got to find a medium uh, as, as of a midpoint so that you can explain something simply. And that's where people like me come in. And having read a fantastic book called Factfulness by Hans Rosling, he talks about how a lot of people's information, their inherent bias is always sort of taking a lean on, on the way that they're interpreting things. And they're also operating with information that is no longer factful. And he has gone to many sort of national, international meetings and asked senior politicians to, to the same questions and a very low percentage actually get them right because they're operating from data that no longer is true. How often is that a part of your work? Very frequently, and something I would love to see go away, is some of the reportage that is based on supposition. There was some very interesting research a while ago, ago suggesting, uh, which asked people how many people in the UK uh, they believed were from ethnic minorities. And the results were something like 20%, 30%. The actual answer is closer to 3%. Uh, there's a clue in the word minorities. Um, but um, uh, and there were all sorts of these things. You know, how quickly do you imagine people can have uh, benefits or housing when they come over uh, here legally? And it was sort of immediately we pay for everything, and it just wasn't true. Um, so I would love to see a bit more fact checking. And I'm afraid we uh, certainly in the UK, probably in the US as well, but I'm not so familiar with their media. Uh, we do have a tendency to um, uh, to just believe suppositions. And if I assume something is probably right, it probably is. It may well not be. Um, and uh, the other thing we do is apply US laws to the UK. Um, I've seen so many people saying, uh, when they're writing things, they're saying, how much of a text may I quote uh, without breaching copyright? Um, and uh, people say, oh, there's this law about fair use. Yes, there is in America. Um, in the UK, it's more down to common sense. If you're um, if you're quoting something, or you know you're a critic or something, you want to quote a paragraph, no one's going to touch you. Um, but somewhere in the middle, there is a, a line that is unclear in the UK. Um, so you know, I, I would just like to see a little bit more factfulness. In fact, I haven't read this book, but I, I, I think it's a very useful, uh, a very useful point. There's a lovely old video of George George W. Bush being asked uh, who's the prime minister of Pakistan and things like that. And his answer is general. The general took over. What's his name? General. So yeah, I think people could do with uh, a bit more briefing. And uh, yeah, when I'm media training, I always, always, always stress that preparation, doing your research with all this spare time you've got. I mean, these people are running companies or whatever, so I'm not, I don't want to be too unrealistic, but uh, preparation will get them around an awful lot of um, uh, complications in future let's talk about the sort of sensationalism of the media and how they do have a huge responsibility in the way that the general public are receiving and then interpreting and then using information and data going forward 
share your views on that, Guy. Well, I think uh, you're right. I, I, I think what we've discovered over the last few years is that people will react to their emotions as strongly, if not more strongly, than they will uh, the data. And that's true of both political uh, sides. You know, there's no, uh, you know, it is quite polarised at the moment and there is no, uh, there's no point in taking one side over the other and saying, well, they're all illogical, they're not fact-based. Uh, if you look at the amount of retweeting people do of, say, anti-Donald Trump stuff or anti-Boris Johnson or, you know, the, the Liz Truss uh, questions and things like that, an example cropped up only this week that Boris Johnson was forced to confirm uh, that his holiday, uh, he paid for his holiday himself. It was not paid for by a Tory donor. This can, and there was the amount of retweeting by MPs as well that there was uh, by saying, you know, Boris Johnson must account for this. Boris Johnson hasn't, you know, is this being paid for somebody else? First of all, it speaks about the mistrust that there is around at the moment in politics in general. But also the idea that um, uh, the, the, the fiction, essentially, assuming this, his uh, clarification is correct, the fiction that he had uh, got someone else to pay for his holiday really took flight. And it's because people thought, yeah, that's likely. And so they retweeted it. No checking, no waiting for Johnson to comment, just went ahead with it. And when that appears in the media rather than on social media, uh, it does start to gain currency. The thing about the media is that uh, one of the things we are supposed to do, I still consider myself one of them, is uh, that uh, we're supposed to check things from two sources. Now, of course, if the one source is just amplifying another or they and you don't know they've picked it up from the same place, that starts to get dangerously diluted. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. And I also, with that mistrust and, and the failure culture that we're living in, it's it's almost impossible to make a mistake without you losing your job or having to resign, especially in, in government. Well, now, this is it. I, th I think we've got to get to the stage and we're way apart, we're way uh, away from uh, the media question at the moment. I think you've got to be allowed to make a mistake uh, and um, and say so. You know, when uh, uh, we mentioned the Liz Truss example earlier about how she said she'd been willfully misrepresented. I would have thought more of her if she'd said, I wasn't being clear or, yeah, yes, actually, I've had another look at that. Um, or even, look, I wasn't expecting the Prime Minister to resign. I've been caught on the hop like everybody else. Uh, we are making this up, not making it up as we go along. We are formulating, I'm sure would be a better word, uh, as uh, we go along. There will be discoveries of things that don't actually work. Um, and I think that would be, I would certainly respect any politician who said that more than I respect the sort of, I've got to uh, say that I didn't get it wrong. Because that's back to the strong man, I'm invincible school of politics which i don't think makes sense you know nobody's uh, faultless we aren't there are going to be making mistakes particularly when things move as quickly as they did a few weeks ago and you did say that you don't work with politicians so i don't i'm not don't want to focus on on this area uh, particularly but what i wanted to in the media focus on is again that the culture of catching people out seems to be the way that sells papers sells broadcasts and the you know across all of the different media I think that's right. It's the old thing about bad news sells. Uh, and uh, the way to explain it is to, it, if you think about a restaurant, let's say a massive restaurant chain, let's actually use um, uh, a real example. Let's say McDonald's. I don't know how many people go into a McDonald's restaurant every day and do not get food poisoning. That never hits the headlines because it is expected. Uh, you get it right, they get they, 
whatever your view on um, the, the quality of the food is, that's not relevant. You know, if you go in there, it does you no harm. That's the whole uh, idea of a restaurant. So inevitably, if a restaurant, not McDonald's, just in case the lawyers are listening, uh, does cause somebody food poisoning, that's the news. So it's it's what it's it's the underlying trust I think that people have to have, and they, they expect people to get things right most of the time. So when people say you know there's not um, you know there, there isn't enough focus on good news, well good news tends to be quite I hesitate to say normal given what's happening is heating costs and things like that. But when you know good news tends to be expected, uh, you know a country doesn't go to war with another. Um, big wow, you know that that's uh, you know countries don't usually we hope go to war with each other. Um, you know, politician doesn't lie is not news in the same way that politician caught lying actually is. Now, when it comes to picking away at every tiny little thing, and I have seen politicians, again, we're talking about politicians again, suggesting that people are picking when actually they've come out with a walloping great big fib or being completely misinformed. Um, that's, um, you know, that, that, that's a different thing. But I think, uh, you know, it is the it is the journalist's job, it is the, the podcaster's job to hold people to account. And I can't see a way around that without uh, probing, not necessarily trying to catch people out, but in the same way that you're doing, trying to sort of see what's under uh, the motivation. You're not trying to catch me out. You're trying to find out what makes me tick. And that's a very different thing. And I think I'd like to see more of that and less of the, uh, you know, huh, but didn't you do such and such in 1973? So that's terribly relevant because you were eight years old and you changed your mind. So is it, do you think, truth and justice and a fair representation that is your uh, your drivers? Yes, um, I think uh, certainly truth. Um, justice is uh, another, I mean, doing somebody's view justice. Uh, yeah, I mean, not in the judicial sense, uh, but, um, you know, if somebody had committed a crime and they'd served their time and they wanted to be interviewed about that and uh, there was an audience there, I think they've probably got the right to be heard. Um, but, uh, or, you know, People may be inclined to hear them. There is the old debate about what's in the public interest and what the public's interested in, and they may be uh, different things. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think uh, you know certainly truth is um, is vital. Um, there are always different interpretations of truth, as I was saying, you know, even in my first year on the trade press, it's the has somebody won a contract, that's the positive news, or has somebody lost a contract, that's the negative news, both of which will sub uh, simultaneously be true. And whichever you put in the first sentence is your decision about what's uh, the most important thing and what your reader is going to be most interested in. So there's, there's very, you know, you can have objective truth, but, um, you know, at the next election, general election, somebody will lose somebody will win and uh you know which of the papers will say somehow somebody managed to lose this in spite of such and such and the others will be great result for such and such um so you know i think there is a, still a lot of interpretation but the central truth has got to be still be there is it the fear of failure is it the fear factor in essence that drives the you said that bad news sells but is it based on fear um i don't know i think it's the, there's there's an element of people, um, whether it's big business, whether it's politicians, you know, just believing that these people can't be acting in our interests uh, and uh, that it would be, it's, it's, it's therefore healthy to catch them out. I think it's healthy to keep them on their toes and make sure they're aware that they're being watched um, uh, and held to account, as long as it's justifiably held to account. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, I... I'm not sure that fear is part of that from the journalist's point of view. I think uh, maybe perhaps 
<clears throat> and I would hope that people who are responsible for uh, running our services for um, yeah, yeah, whether that's computing, whether that's utilities, whether that's restaurants or whatever, I would hope it's more than fear driving them. I hope it's a uh, you know, genuine wish to do a good job. Absolutely. And, and on that note, on that positive note, how would people get in contact with you to for you to be able to do a good job with them? Well, they're welcome to go to my website uh, anytime. Just search for Guy Clapperton. Um, but uh, guy at clapperton.co.uk, uh, two P's in Clapperton. And uh, that's an ER in the middle, so it's not Clapton. Um, uh, or just search me on LinkedIn and you'll find me very easily. Um, I'm very lucky my parents didn't call me John Smith. Sorry, apologies to anybody called John Smith out there, but I mean, I'm easy to find and uh, I'm going to stop talking now. Guy, all your details will be in the show notes. We'll be able to find them. So thank you so much. And thank you for sharing all about your near future and the underlying trust, the right to be heard, the, the importance of putting your point across clearly. It's been a really interesting conversation. How would you like to close out today's episode? If you're going to go into, into an interview, Preparation is nine-tenths of uh, what you need to do. Uh, be clear of your agenda. And uh, if you want to think about what's likely to happen in the near future, have a look at what the, the company down the road is doing now. How has this conversation had an impact on you? What value have you received from tuning in? What are your reflections with actions? Please take a moment to leave me an Apple podcast or Spotify review sharing how Focus on Why has made a difference to you today. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. To keep it going, simply connect with me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter or join the Focus on Why Facebook group. All the links are in the show notes. Have a purpose, have a plan, focus on why.